Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey, Iyad. Hey, Ahmed. How are you doing? Not bad. How are you? How, what have you been thinking about this week? Um. So... I'm trying to get my sleep routine under control this week, yeah. and I think I've basically, given that I've just entered my fourth decade. Fourth decade? Uh, yeah, entering the fourth oh, decade, so finished you're, three. You're just, you're just turned 30. Yeah, yeah, so I'm at that stage now where if I haven't had a full night's sleep and a good one, my day's just basically not worth waking up to. Um, I've just started to finally notice such a, such a colossal difference in my productivity. Um, that, yeah, it's really not worth it. Um, and I've lived like basically 30 years trying to squeeze every last minute out of my day and fighting sleep like it's my mortal enemy. Like each, each night is kind of me trying to get revenge against my sleep hours. And now I'm just not doing that anymore. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if I told you, but when I was, I'm, I'm, I'm about to turn 45, uh, like this year. Uh, but when I was in my twenties, I, uh, I was obsessed with getting as little sleep as possible like because i was working on a startup I'm, I'm like a career entrepreneur right so i was i wanted to see if i can increase my productivity by increasing my waking hours and reducing my sleep so i went uh, i was i think i was 24 or something and uh i i started by i wanted to see how long i can go without sleeping and i think i was awake for like th- three days or three and a half days uh, Did you get to the hallucination stage? I consumed so much Red Bull. Oh. Uh, and I, I remember at the end of it, uh, I was literally sleepwalking. Like, literally sleepwalking. But anyway, after that, I tried to do this thing called the Leonardo method, the Da Vinci method. Uh, is this poly- polyphasic sleep? This this is like, it's based upon this theory that, you know, you have uh, brain, like basically waves to your, to your sleep cycle. And that you yeah. could sleep for 20 minutes after every four hours and and that should like it's something like that i don't remember this was like a very long time ago uh hmm. long story short i could only keep it up for three three months uh or two months or something and then you crashed hard and i i had so what made me crash was not uh it, it like I, I maybe maybe i could like it's it's not really the the sleepiness it's the fact my body was kind of like you know, falling apart. Like uh, I, I had pain in places of my body that I didn't know hurt, like can hurt. I started getting pain in like the muscles of my of my hand, uh, in my knuckles. It's like you know, my my body was simply not getting enough rest, right, uh, and not enough time for you know to. I I don't know. I was stupid, and uh, I I learned my lesson. Yeah, a few years ago, I tried uh, biphasal sleep. I read somewhere that through most of human history, um, sleeping in one block through the night was not the norm. And what people used to do was sleep for a while, then wake up for a few hours and sleep again. And it's like common across cultures. In English, in old English writings, you can find references to first sleep and second sleep, um, like sleep with an E on the end, so you know how old it is. Um, like in the Islamic tradition, you have Qiyam al-Layl and things like that, like the night prayer where you wake up um, for an hour or two. Um, so anyway, I decided to implement this. And I was... Because the idea is that um, you basically cut the parts of... When, when you split your sleep, 
you sleep less because you cut the parts which aren't as effective at resting and you go straight into REM and deep sleep, um, which are more restful. Yeah, so um, I, I, I did, I did, I did that for a while. So for for a very long time in my in my around I was around your age, that was the standard for me to to actually sleep you know sleep for two hours in the afternoon and then you know whatever hours at night, and then I stopped. And the reason why I stopped was. I felt that you still have, like you have, you need some time to fall asleep. And then after you wake up, you need some time to, to you know, to, to get back to that full wakefulness, right? And yeah. I felt I'd rather do that once than twice. In the end, you know, by the way, notice something, both of us, we are not like, at least, I mean, now I'm thinking about my health, right? But at least when I was younger, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about squeezing as much time out of, uh, out of my day. It yep. was really driven by productivity, you know? Yeah. So my one eventually crashed because um, splitting it, I had less time to sleep and therefore it was really important to sleep on time. And therefore, if anything threw off my routine by like 20 minutes, then the whole thing would collapse. Yeah. Uh, because I wouldn't get to sleep in time. I wouldn't wake up in time. Knock on effect. Everything's gone. So I'll tell you what actually works. This is like after uh, 45 uh, years of uh, experimentation on my body. What actually works is waking up consistently at the same time, regardless what happens. You keep mm-hmm. doing that. So uh, uh, I have a weird kind of alarm system. My alarm is actually my robot vacuum. I I program my, 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 my vacuum to wake up at the same time, right? Um, and so, and you know, the remote is kept across the room and it's very loud. Uh, and so like, I have to get up. Uh, but then what happens that when you start waking up exactly at the same time, your body starts adjusting. And, you know, the first few days you might not get enough sleep. And so you're going to go directly into deep sleep. Eventually you start adjusting and eventually you start waking up before the alarm. But anyway, like mm-hmm. I'm making sure that I get enough, uh, enough hours. That's one of the main things that I did when I started my recovery from PTSD was uh, ensuring that I get enough sleep. Uh, but there was like an advantage to, to the, because on weekends I still wake up, um, I, I still try to sleep in. Uh, sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes I, I want to sleep in and I still wake up on time. So switching topics a little bit, but this last weekend, uh, I woke up early enough to, to read, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my weekends normally I spend them with family, but then I woke up early enough to actually, to, to, to do some reading. Uh, and it's weird when I read on my weekend, because normally my, my reading during the week is driven by, by work topics. So this was like low, like no pressure, just read whatever you want. And for some reason I felt into the, I fell into this rabbit hole because I started asking myself. So, uh, I saw a post on Instagram, uh, which, which, uh, told which which said something that I didn't, I didn't know was, was a fact. It was about how, um, uh, Latinos in the Americas have uh, you know, have more Native American DNA than any other group. Uh, and then I went, I went in, I wanted to see if it's true. It turns out that on average, uh, a Spanish, like the average Spanish speaking person, uh, not in America only, but like we're talking about America and the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the, the continent has 18% Native American DNA compared to 1%, you know, between, you know, between 0.5 or 1.5% to other, for other, for other racial groups. And I just wanted, like, I, I was just fascinated. I'm like, 
why did Spanish become the majority language of uh, of Native Americans? And uh, I ended up like reading for two hours, like reading two academic papers and several, uh, you know, I think I think it was like a thesis or something badly typed. So is this why? Is this why Spanish as opposed to Portuguese or English or French? Uh, no, why Spanish at all? Why did like like why? Uh, like there's of course the question of why didn't their native languages survive? You know, keep in mind I don't have a lot of context because you know we're we're you know, we're Arabs and we mostly speak we're, we're mostly when we read we're mostly reading our own our own uh, you know history. So this was like an area that I hadn't really looked into before, uh, but it was very eye opening. I mean the summary is that. Spanish became the majority language of many Native Americans through uh, a complex process, which included Spanish imperial policy. Like initially, they actually Spain actually had like language imperialism going back to the the Reconquista period, where uh, establishing. So first of all, it wasn't Spanish; it was Castilian, because Sp Spain itself was basically uh, multiple. It wasn't exactly united into one political entity. But, uh, you know, Castilian and uh, became kind of Spanish. It became the official language. And it was important for them, you know, because they en ended up expelling Jews and Arabs, uh, Jews and Muslims, you know, who, you know, who spoke either Arabic or Ladino. Um, and so imposing Spanish was part of also imposing their authority over, you know, people who are, uh, you know, freshly conquered either assimilating them or getting them to leave. So when they took this to the to the quote-unquote new world, which wasn't very new, um, they had this issue of how do we manage, because we don't understand the language. Uh, so over the years, over like, you know, talking about 500 years, they, they switched, sometimes they wanted to impose Spanish and sometimes they wanted to use the majority, whatever majority languages existed in, in, uh, in Native American uh, empires. Whether it is, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Mexico or in or in, uh, in or in Southern America, so essentially, some of this process also involved evangelism. So they tried, for example, to tie uh, speaking, you know, uh, teaching or forcing the, the enforcing the the use of the Spanish language to uh, Christianization, and then sometimes it was like it didn't work because the native languages did not translate so well. The Bible did not really translate that well in those languages. Uh, but then there was also a really interesting phenomenon, which is the successive uh, displacement of native people. So like, so, you know, for a very long time, I thought that there was this, that there's this term called mestizo, which is supposedly uh, people who are from shared heritage from Spanish and uh, Native American heritage. And I found that actually it's that's like not the, the equivalent of half caste or something. I I I figured that I I discovered that that's actually not true. Most of the mixing was not between the colonists and the the, the colonists and the colon and the colonized. It was among the colonized, because this is a large area. I mean, you're talking about a, like two continents, right? It wasn't like, it was more like a Norwegian and an Italian finding themselves in a refugee camp together because they're, they're both being displaced and their villages have been burnt and they need mm. to find a way to speak to each other and so they end up speaking whatever is the commonest language which ended up to be spanish and so successively spanish became their majority language even as their language or their own languages basically were, were exterminated uh, and at the same time there was an admixture they started mixing together they, they didn't really see themselves as one people but they ended up mixing together and that's how eventually we came to the situation where Spanish became the majority, like an important language 
of uh, Native Americans. So I would have just assumed that it's because the Spanish Empire happened to win, um, and then chain of you know extermination, destruction of communities, etc. But it's interesting that there's a lot more detail to exactly how it happened. There was, I think, there was a, a, an agreement. So I, I'm not clear about the details, but basically the Pope. This was very early in the discovery, the European discovery of the Americas. The Pope basically said everything to the to the east of here is for to Portugal. Everything to the west is is uh, is uh, Spain. This is back when they were still debating whether the natives had souls. They hadn't discovered yet how size is, what's the size of the landmass. So that's why only like why, that's why Portugal only got uh, Brazil, and then everything else went to uh, you know went went to Spain. Yeah, um, that reminds me of uh, the origin of Urdu. Was it you that told me about that? I think no. It was uh, you know uh, it, it was someone who was a Pakistani who told me this. He said, I, I'm not, I'm not like, I haven't, I haven't looked this up, but he said that mm-hmm. Urdu basically is called the camp language. Uh, it arose when uh, certain, uh, you know, certain Islamic uh, or Muslim, I want to say, uh, generals, uh, this is in the late period. So these were Turkic Muslims. Uh, they were, I think, Persian, like they had Persian culture, but they were actually Turkic. They would recruit people from many cultures, many of some of... So which century is this, roughly? I would say 12th century or so. Okay. Um, and they'd recruit from across. They, the they'd recruit empire. from everywhere. So, like, they'd have people who are who speak like you know speak Indian languages and people who speak Arabic, people who speak Persian, people who speak Turkic, Turkic, uh, because Turkish. I don't think Turkish as uh, as as uh, you know the current the modern Turkish hadn't hadn't evolved yet or taken shape yet. And so eventually, it became you know uh, uh, a mix. So this is just uh, kind of emerges a pigeon that they all spoke together in the camp. I mean, uh, that, that's that's the suggestion. I haven't I haven't looked it up, but uh, that's the suggestion. It makes sense. And you know, keep in mind, of course, that it is now uh, a majority language of Pakistan, and also, uh, I mean, Indians uh, Indians and Pakistanis can speak uh, to each other using this language, but I think they call it Hindi uh, in India. It's called Hindi, and in Pakistan, it's called Urdu. Yeah. Uh, but it's really interesting how, uh, I mean, what's, what was interesting for me reading all of this is really, um, I mean, because it took me, it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole, right? So like from there, I started asking the question, um, what, because I, I was wondering how did, col- how did that age of, colon- of colonialism end? And I was wondering mm-hmm. if the first world war and the second world war did not happen, would we still be living in the tail end of colonialism? Because it was really the first and second world war that kind of destroyed like large areas of of Europe were basically left in ruins, and then that's and they withdrew from the colonies because they were bankrupt. Exactly. So I started wondering, like you know, would would this would this have happened otherwise? And what like why did it happen, etc. It's still like the jury's mm. still up. I'm still looking into it. Yeah, that's very provocative. But I know, like, uh, we were talking earlier, and you were telling me how, like, half of your, uh, um, half of your database, your 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 personal knowledge base is basically about crypto. Uh, so yeah, um, it's a deep rabbit hole. The thing is, when you get into it, you get into like details of stuff that's way too intricate to get unless you actually devote attention to it and care enough. Um, so I don't want to take you down some kind of. Uh, some tangent, which you just like, why the hell do you care about this? Yeah, but there was this part that you actually referenced uh, several times in our in our private conversation, which was the the interview with uh, with Duke, uh, Duke Juan. 
Yeah, have you seen it? I have seen it, and uh, I've seen that lots of people also were retweeting it at the time, but maybe you should, uh, you yeah, should introduce I'm it. I'm going to insert a clip here. I wonder, you know, and you kind of alluded to this, you're, it sounds like you're not interested in the United States at all. I wonder if you could tell us why, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why you're based in Asia to begin with. No, no, no I, I am Asian, as, as you can see. I, I, I was born in Asia. It's just a question that, you know, when it's fascinating when talking to Americans that they're sort of obsessed with American policy and American regulators and things like that, it's quite possible that in other parts of the world that they have different priorities and different things to pay attention to. What? It's not that I'm not interested <laughs> in the United States. It's just that I'm interested in the entire world because I'm not from the United States. No, I, I get it. But you're, it sounds like you're, you're just not interested you know, in when we ask, you know, how would you want to see policy shaped? You, you seemed in the U.S. You're not interested. No, I, I'm interested in global policy. I'm not particularly interested in how U.S. policy shapes around crypto, or you know, particularly algorithmic stablecoins. It doesn't really impact my life. Yeah. Uh, so this is my favorite interview ever. Um, and he's basically being interviewed by a couple of journalists who are asking him. So for context, uh, Do Kwan is the founder of uh, a blockchain called the Terra blockchain. Um, he runs the company which develops it. He's based in South Korea. Um, they have this, uh, so basically their innovation is this algorithmic stablecoin. Uh, whereas most other stablecoins are basically uh, meant to be one-to-one -one reserves, so like Tether. Uh, the idea is that for each one USDT, one tether they, that they issue, they have a real dollar in their bank account. And that's how a USDT is worth a dollar. But with, so the Terra blockchain has two coins. One is called Luna and one is called UST. Um, and the way it maintains the peg of UST to a dollar is every time it falls below a dollar, um, they purchase UST with the Luna coins um, and destroy the Luna. Um, to buy back the price of USD to the peg. And if it goes above, they do the reverse. So you're either, they're either minting or destroying Luna to maintain the peg of USD via an algorithm rather than by a centralized party, um, which is, you know, it's a really interesting idea. Um, but these guys were, these journalists were asking him about regulation and uh, what he thought about US uh, regulations. And So wait, the journalists are from where? Americans. Yeah, okay. So they're asking him about the SEC's plans and how it affects him and what he thinks about US regulation. And he's like kind of trying to tell them that it doesn't matter to me much. I don't care. Um, and for some reason, it just won't sink in. They don't get it. And they're like, they're basically starting to ask these bizarre questions almost to the extent of how did you contrive yourself to be based in Korea to avoid the SEC's laws? And he's like, look at my face. I'm Korean. I don't care about your laws. <laughs> like, which way can I say this? I, I um, mean, uh, yeah, because I guess for them, they don't like, it's difficult for them to, to imagine that, you know, there is a large enough economy outside the United States that people can now not even look at the United States as a market and they can still do very, very, very well. Yeah. And that, the world is literally bigger than your country. Your government is not everybody's government and your rules are not everybody's rules. I mean, I saw it um, and it was an amazing interview. And I think, uh, I think maybe we should, we should, uh, we should insert it. 
Yeah. It's just because um, this was really explicit and it makes explicit what's implicit a lot of the time because people go around with these assumptions so often and kind of the way they approach the world shows you that this is the, how they're thinking of it. So it was nice to just see it made explicit and ridiculous for once. I mean, I do I do think that... Uh, so a lot of my notes recently... These are professional notes. I mean, this is kind of a project that we're doing for uh, for with, with, for Coacity. Um has the, it's, it's really about how the world order is shifting because I think that a lot of these things uh, are really part of a shift in, in, in world order and shift of of uh, of, uh, uh, of relative power among uh, the, the, the the biggest uh, you know uh, regions of the world. And I think that we you know we have reached kind of a watershed. Maybe the Trump presidency and its aftermath were part of that watershed because it accelerated certain things. Uh, but it seems to me that um, this is a symptom. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of funny, but also very, very, uh, you know, very provocative to see. But I think it's part of a larger symptom and we're going to see more of these things. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I think we're at time now. Catch you next time. Catch you next time. Salam alaikum. Salam. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.